Right, so our reading today is going to be 1 Corinthians 18 um, through 31. So if you have your Bibles today, please feel free to get them out if you use an app. If you are tuning in online, hopefully you have your Bible handy and you can grab it and read along with us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Well, today we're going to continue studying 1 Corinthians, um, as Joel introduced this series last week. And we're going to continue this theme that he introduced, this theme of unity in Christ. I mean, and focusing on unity in 1 Corinthians really makes sense when you kind of understand the context of 1 Corinthians, because um, as many of you probably have already figured out, this is a letter to a church in Corinth, hence Corinthians. Um, Paul, from what we read in Acts 18, Paul actually established the church in Corinth. And if you read Acts 18, you also realize that Paul was was there for, I think, like a year and a half, he was there for a good chunk of ch- for a good chunk of time before he was forced out of the city. And then, from what we read from both Acts and from this letter, it seems like Apollos, another famous teacher, famous teacher, came through, and he helped continue to grow the church. And then it also seems that maybe even Peter at some point came and visited this church, which is why last week, if you remember the passage from last week, there was these divisions. There was these tribes that had formed. Some people were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And also one thing you need to understand is that this is a letter. And this actually isn't probably the first letter that was sent to the church in Corinth. Many people think that this was at least the second letter, uh, that this was actually a dialogue that is going on between Paul and the church, that he had sent them a letter at some point, 
they had sent him a letter letting him know, let it, asking him some questions, which he will address later on in Corinthians, but also letting him know about some of these issues that arise. So some of these issues about divisions in the church. So when Paul sent them a letter back, the first thing he wanted to address was unity. He wanted to address these divisions. And again, a big part of these divisions were them trying to like point out that their favorite teacher was better than any other teacher. They were saying, well, I follow Peter, and Peter is better than both Paul or Apollos, or I follow Apollos, and he was way better than Paul. Like that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're boasting by affiliation. And there's this concept that essentially what they're doing, which is called name dropping. And if you never heard that term before, it's essentially when you are trying to impress somebody else by stating that you know somebody famous. Usually you try to do it kind of casually, but you're doing it in a way that tries to like imply that you have some relationship with the person. So you could be like talking to somebody and they could be like, well, you know, the other day I was hanging out with my good friend, Boris Johnson. You know, you know Boris, right? You know him, right? Like, of course, when people do that, nine times out of 10, they have no, like, they really have no idea who that person is. Like, they might have met that person on the street and got, like, a selfie with them, and suddenly they're like, oh, yes, I'm best friends with that famous person. But that's not the point. The point isn't that they have a relationship. The point is, is that they want you to hear them say that and be like, oh, wow, that guy is famous. That means that you must be a cool person because you know somebody so famous, right? It's, it's boasting not in yourself, but boasting because you're tied to somebody who this other person thinks is, is cool, that other people think are important. Which is why I love at the end of the passage from last week, uh, Paul, like, he gives this little, like, statement right at the end where he's like, I'm glad that I only baptized, like, these two guys. And then I love also because this just shows that Paul was like, he like remembered something while he was writing because in parentheses like a verse later he's like oh yeah I also remembered that I baptized this family but other than that I, I can't think of anybody else that I baptized which which gives me this thought that there might have been somebody that Paul forgot that he baptized and think about this try to put your Put yourself in that person's position because that person might have been walking around the church of Corinth being like, yeah, yeah, you guys are all cool, but I got baptized by Paul. I'm special because I'm one of the few people that Paul baptized when he was here. And then this letter comes to the church and you hear Paul start saying, I'm glad that I only baptized. And you're like, ah, here it comes. Here comes my moment of fame. And he lists two people that aren't you. And you're like, wait, what? And then you, and then a little bit later, the person's like, oh, wait, yes, uh, who's reading the letter? Because remember, letters are read out in front of the whole church, so everybody's there. And then you, the guy's like, Paul says, oh, yeah, I also baptized. And you're like, ah, ah, see, Paul remembered. Paul remembered. And then he's like, I baptized this other family. And you're like, wait a second. What, what about me? Right? Like, you're boasting that you've been using, that you've been walking around, the thing that you've been trying to make yourself feel special just completely falls flat. Which is the theme of the passage that Rachel just read for us, that we're going to be studying today. That we are nothing without Christ. Now hopefully you have your Bible still on you. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. But first, 
if read verse 18 from 1 Corinthians 1 again with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The center of our faith doesn't make sense to the world, right? He, Paul uses this phrase. Um, it says, the word of the cross. He's referencing the belief that, we, that our faith stands on, that Jesus had lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, and then he came back to life. I mean, Paul explicitly, if you're wondering what the word of the cross is, well, don't take my word for it. Paul basically says this in pretty explicit terms later on in Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, it's a short right-hand turn, as one of my old pastors used to say. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, and you will see... 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, it says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Right, this is one of the actual few passages in the New Testament that explicitly says what the gospel is. Like, for something that we hold really valuable, you would think that it says, like, you would have a lot of verses that says, this is the gospel, but this is actually one of the few verses that are like, when we say gospel, this is what we're saying. And I think what's interesting is, what's the first thing in the gospel that, that Paul lists? It's that Christ died. I mean, when you break down what we believe into very, very casual terms, you could say that we believe that the very God who created everything decided to become a human, decided to intentionally let himself be killed in the most gruesome and painful way possible, then three days later got out of the grave and then peaced out back to heaven. Like... I know that's a very oversimplification, but right? But that's like, if you break it down into simple terms, you could say that. And when you say it kind of that way, you can kind of see why if you aren't a believer and you hear that, you're like, well, yeah, that seems silly. Well, because why would the God who created everything want to become a human? And if this God became human, well, obviously he would want to make himself somebody that's really important somebody that's really powerful. He wouldn't make himself just some carpenter in the Middle East. And if he did that, if he was this God that created everything, why would he intentionally let himself be killed, and especially be killed in such a way? Jesus' sacrifice from this viewpoint, of course, can look foolish to the world. Right? It feels like when you're watching maybe when you're either reading a book or watching a tv show or a movie and there's a character that dies or they sacrifice themselves in a way that just doesn't make sense and rachel can tell you that no one gets more upset at a story than me when i feel like the story forced one of its characters to just do something that's dumb um the, i mean the first example actually that came to mind when i was writing this 
was from a Korean drama, but then I realized that probably none of you binge watch Korean TV like me and Rachel, so I was like, that's probably not the best example to give. So instead, I'll go with something else that might be, that some of you might have seen, um, The Avengers, specifically the second movie of The Avengers. And I'm sure that even if you've never seen that movie, you at least are aware that the su Avengers are superheroes and all of that. And during their second movie, there's this scene near the end where one of them is about to be shot and killed by the bad guy. And luckily for that hero who's about to be killed, there's another superhero named Quicksilver nearby. And throughout the whole movie, Quicksilver has been shown that his main power is that he's really, really fast. Like he catches bullets. Um, when it shows like stuff from his perspective, everything just seems to move slow. Like he moves so fast that people can't see him move. It's almost like he's teleporting. That's how fast he's moving. So with that in mind, you have a hero who can move ridiculously fast. You have a hero who's about to be shot. You think, ah, this guy can easily with his power move, push the guy out of the way, or maybe grab something and put it in front of the guy so that he wouldn't be shot. But what does he do? Well, he just runs in front of the guy and gets shot himself. And while that might seem heroic, when you think about it, it actually feels kind of dumb. It feels like they, basically the writers decided, hey, this guy's going to die. We're going to figure out a way to kill him. Um, we'll just make him do this. In other words, it can seem foolish. And Paul rightly points out that our faith looks the same way to those who are perishing, to those who are not Christian. Now, real quick, um, if, you, if that's you, if you're watching this or listening in and thinking, well, yeah, you all do sound a little crazy. Well, just, I challenge you just to hang around and because I think you're going to see that we're not as silly as you may think we are. Because notice that the second part of verse 18 says that what is foolish to the world is power, is the power of God to us who are being saved. You see, when you start to understand some of those questions of those why questions, like why would the God who created everything come down and intentionally let himself die a painful death? Well, when you find the answers, you come, to come face to face with a God who not only blows away any conventional wisdom the world can throw at him, but you find a God who just loves you so dearly that he was willing to do something that seems ridiculous so that you can live that you could experience his love. Paul even alludes this by quoting Isaiah. That's the next verse. And real quick, when you're reading your Bible, whether you're doing this by yourself or in a group or whatever, especially if you're reading the New Testament and you see the author is quoting something from the Old Testament, just pause. Look, there's probably a footnote at the bottom of the Bible or if you're using an app, there's probably a little footnote next to it. Click on it. Look at where, who they're quoting, where it comes from, and look it up. Because the authors in the New Testament don't just quote verses from the Old Testament because they sound good. They quote verses because the whole context around that verse also is important to whatever they're sharing. So in this case, Paul is inserting Isaiah 29, 14, which not only supports his argument, because it talks about how God is greater than the wise or that his discernment makes, look, makes the most discerning person look foolish. But because he, 
it talks about how God is going to be saving Israel through his wisdom. That God's salvation for Israel is not going to come about through man's wisdom. It's not going to come about because somebody who's really smart is going to figure out a solution. It's going to come about because God is the one in control. And what God decides to do, while it might seem foolish to the wise, actually makes more sense than anything a human being could come up with. And this is a great reason, right, that you should read and understand the whole Bible, that you should uh, read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is just going to help you understand the New Testament even more. So in the same way that Israel's salvation is going to come through God's wisdom, not through the wisdom of man, Paul's saying the the salvation of the world is not going to come through the wisdom of man. It's going to come from the wisdom of God. And we get that from the next few verses in 1 Corinthians 1, which says this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made has yeah, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now those first three questions there in um in verse 20, those are all questions about people who usually you would think are smart, right? Who is, where's the person that's wise? Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? The scribe is the person, is like the Bible teacher. Where are all these people, right? These are people that you would probably turn to if you needed an answer to a problem, if you needed some kind of solution. You know, if you're facing a hard time, you're going to turn to somebody who you think is knowledgeable. And Paul's saying like, where is those people? Because those people aren't going to save the world. In fact, he says that God uses not the wise, but he uses what the wise would consider foolish. He uses the very thing that doesn't make sense to bring salvation. I once heard a person say that Christianity, like he believes in Christianity because no human could make it up. And that statement has stuck with me because as I read and I hear about other religions, I start to see patterns arise. Now, right now, Rachel has been doing this online class uh, about East Asian philosophy. And whenever Rachel takes a class, it means that I also take that class. So as we're studying together, as we're reading through the various articles that her teacher has assigned and the textbook that her teacher's assigned, well, we've constantly seen that a lot of religions still have like a sprinkling of truth in there. Like there's, you can tell there's a little bit of truth. There's things that we read and we're like, oh, that does sound like something that came from the Bible. But there's also just common themes, especially if those religions are from the same geographical area, but there's also common themes that seem to go in all world religions, no matter what geographical area they come from. And usually the biggest common theme is that what, in whatever form of salvation your religion is saying that you're trying to achieve, it's usually up to you. So you need to do certain good deeds, or you need to practice certain rituals, or you need to say certain liturgies, say certain things over and over and over again in, in order to reach paradise or enlightenment 
or moksha or whatever it is that the end goal of your religion is. But Christianity is different because we teach there is nothing that you can do to reach heaven. No matter how good you are or what deeds you do, it will not be enough. It's only through God and his son Jesus that someone is able to enter eternal rest. And because of that fact, because it isn't something we do, we cannot boast about anything or hold ourselves better than somebody else because we didn't do anything. One aspect of living in a country that is across the ocean from the country that your family lives in is that if you're going to go visit your family or your family's going to go visit you, somebody's getting on a plane. I mean, I guess technically somebody could get on a boat, but that would, also, that would take way too long. Just get on a plane. But if you get on a plane and you fly somewhere, when you get off the plane, you don't go like around being like, did you see that? I rode that plane the whole way here. It's because of me that the plane made it. I mean, I sat there and I watched about five different movies, but because I did that, the plane totally arrived safely, right? You don't go around boasting that you like somehow made the plane get to where it's supposed to be. You didn't do anything. You just sat there. You, what you did is you trusted the pilot. You trusted the people in the tower. You trusted the people who do the maintenance on that plane. You trusted all the other people who helped get the plane from point A to point B. And you know what it means when you trust somebody else to get you safely from point A to point B? That says you put faith in that person. Let's keep reading the next few verses. It says, but we, uh, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Real quick, again, if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Matthew 12. It's a left-hand turn in your Bible from 1 Corinthians. We're going to specifically be looking at Matthew 12, verses uh, starting in verse 38. But real quick, before we read that, um, just some context. You see, the Jews, throughout the whole Bible— are given all kinds of miracles and all kinds of signs, right? Uh, they're leaving Egypt. You have the plagues. When they're on their way to the promised land, you have all kinds of miracles that happen. I mean, you have prophets that show up and do miracles. Like, they're given signs over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And several hundred years later, when Jesus comes around, nothing's changed. They still want signs to prove that God is doing something. So read with me, uh, starting in verse 38 of Matthew 12. It says this, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah, greater than Jonah is here. 
When Jesus is challenged to prove that he's the Messiah, the Jews come to him and they ask him for a sign, which is already kind of silly because by this point in Jesus's story, no matter which gospel you read this little, like the version of what just happened, Jesus has already been healing people. I mean, he's been doing miracles all over the place. So it's weird for them to come up and ask for a sign. But Jesus says he'll give them a sign. He'll give them the sign of Jonah. But that leaves us with this question of, well, what is the sign of Jonah? Now, real quick, I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to use this to jump into as an excuse to jump back to Jonah and teach all of Jonah again, though I was very tempted to. I'm just going to keep my I'm trying to keep my Jonah section short. So stay with me. Here we go. So Jonah's sign was the fish, right? It says that being in the fish for three days and three nights. And interestingly, notice that Jesus says that he is a better Jonah. Because if you remember, when we talked through Jonah, one of the themes that I tried to drive home while teaching through Jonah is that you don't want to be Jonah. You don't want to look like Jonah. Jonah is not the hero of his story. But here we have Jesus saying that he's going to be like Jonah, but he's going to be better. He's going to do what Jonah did, but the correct way. Because just like in chapter one of Jonah, when he's on the boat and there's a storm going around and there's the pagan sailors and he tells the sailors to throw him over into the ocean, and it might seem like this noble sacrifice, really, Jonah is just trying to escape God's plan. But now we have Jesus, who is going to let pagans kill him, but instead of using his death to escape God's plan, He's using his death to fulfill God's plan. And then Paul mentions the Greeks. And the Greeks have this need for wisdom, which Paul was well aware of because in the chapter before Paul establishes the church in Corinth, in Acts 17, we have a story of Paul in Athens. Actually, the city right before Corinth is Athens. And when he was in Athens, Acts 17, verse 21, tells us this about that city, that now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All of those Greeks wanted to know was new knowledge. Not necessarily that, be, that they would believe the new thing, they just wanted to know it. But just in the same way that Jesus was like the, is the ultimate sign for the Jews, he is also the ultimate wisdom for the Greeks. In fact, when we talk about wisdom in the Bible, there's probably a book of the Bible that has popped up in your head, and that's Proverbs. And in Proverbs, wisdom is almost like a unique being. Is wisdom is almost a is like described as a character in the book of Proverbs, crying out for people to listen to it. And in verse thirteen, verse nineteen of chapter three, we read this: "The Lord by wisdom founded the earth; by understanding, He established." the heavens. By wisdom, he founded the earth. Now, when it says that God, by wisdom, founded the earth, that he created the earth through wisdom, that might sound familiar, because there's several passages in the New Testament that talk about how everything was created through Jesus. In fact, Paul himself, in his letter to Colossians, says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now, this may not surprise you, but Paul knew his Old Testament. Paul knew that he can connect 
the wisdom of God to Jesus, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So Jesus is the ultimate sign for the Jew. Jesus is the ultimate wisdom for the Greek. So by saying that we preach Christ crucified, he is saying that our teaching fulfills their demands. But what does Paul say happens with the Jew and the Greek? It says that it becomes a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. Yet for us who follow Christ, and note that it says it doesn't matter what race you are, it says both Jew or Greek, it is the power of God. Yet how often do we find ourselves like those Jews and Greeks that we're looking for uh, when we face a hard time, when we're facing a trial, we're looking for some kind of sign. Or maybe we're looking for some kind of wisdom. We're looking at for some way to get ourselves out of it by our own power. We don't need to do that because we already have the ultimate power on our side. In this life, we are more than conquerors because Christ died and came back to life. That is the solid rock that we can stand on. When we wonder where God is, when we are in those moments where we're like, God, where are you? I am going through this trial. Everything seems to be going against me. I don't know where you are. We can reflect on the fact that Christ died and he rose again. And because he was willing, the God of the universe was willing to come and intentionally die a painful death for us, we can believe without any doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's look at the final few verses of our passage. Flip back to 1 Corinthians with me. It says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, real quick, those few verse, few, first few verses always kind of make me laugh because like, what a great way to get yourself in trouble as a teacher is, you know, to stand up and stand up in front of the people that you're teaching and be like, hey, just to let you all know, you're all kind of awful, <laughs> right? Because that's what Paul kind of does right there. But yet that's actually a, like a thing that we need to remember as Christians because we're not special. There's no amazing thing about us that made God look down and, and be like, oh, Oh, that person right there? Oh, that guy? That guy's so cool. I better make sure he's saved. I mean, he wears a vest every Sunday to church. He's, he really loves me. In fact, if we take a quick look through the Bible, we see that pretty much every big character we read about, is all kind, they're all kind of awful, right? Abraham, 
often was a coward. Moses at first tried to come up with any excuse he could to not go back to Egypt. And even when he was leading the people through the, through the like desert into the promised land, you could tell that he was like kind of old and grumpy a lot of the times. <laughs> David, David, who is called the man after God's own heart, killed one of his friends so that he could cover up the fact that he had an affair with that friend's wife. The Bible is full of people who would not be the people you would choose, but it's the people that God chose. And he still does that today. Because to be honest, I'm always like amazed at the fact that I can be up here and teaching you guys. Because when I was younger, I had to go through speech therapy because I, I can't talk well. <laughs> I often stumble over my words. I lose my place when I'm looking down at my notes. Rachel has to constantly correct me on very basic grammar. Yet God is letting someone like that stand up here and teach from his word. I guess what I'm trying to say, that, say is that if you are ever worried that you are not good enough to be used by God, you don't need to worry because none of us are. Because when we break it down, we are saved by believing in something that just seems silly to everyone else. We have nothing we can boast in except for one thing. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what? If you have been watching this whole time, and maybe you are standing on the outside looking in and thinking, yeah, what you just said, yeah, what you believe does sound kind of foolish. Well, I would ask you to come in, because in this foolishness, you will find a relationship with people who are called to love you. You will find love from a God who cared about you so much that he was willing to do that silly thing just so you could get to know him. I would ask you to come in, because when you come in, you will find rest. Because when it is no longer your responsibility to reach heaven, it is no longer your burden to try to be perfect, it's all up to God to do that, that is a heavy burden that can be lifted off your shoulders. If you are wondering how this foolishness can become yours, it's simple. You turn to God and you believe in his son. We don't have to do anything else. We don't have to go through a specific ritual. You don't have to like change yourself some way. God's not asking you to become a specific type of person before becoming saved. God's just saying, come to him. Christ is just saying, come to him. What do you boast in today? Where, where is the power that you're leaning on? Because I can tell you right now, if you are leaning on your own power, that's just, that's just going to be exhausting. I'm so thankful that I can come up here. And I prayed this right before I came up here. It was like, God, I'm thankful that when I get up there and I start teaching, it's not by my power that I'm going to do anything. It's not because I'm somehow gifted in teaching or something like that, that you're going to use that and to change people's hearts. It's not me, it's you. And it, it's really relieving for me to be able to trust that, that it's not up to me anymore. It's up to God. And what power do you trust? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that you are a God that cares about us. That you're a God that was willing to do something that just seems ridiculous, something that 
nobody would think that a God, the God of the universe would do because you loved us so much. You loved us so much that you sent your son so that anyone who believed in him would have eternal life. God, I just pray today that as we go about our week, as we go about whatever you have in store for us, whatever this world has in store for us, I pray that as we face trials of many kinds, that we will remember that we have your power on our side. No matter how dark it seems, no matter how big the valley of death seems that we're in, that we can just trust you. You are our good shepherd. You are our good, good father. Thank you so much for how much you love us. In your name, amen.